We'll hear argument next in case 07371, Taylor versus Sturgill. Ms. Rosenbaum. Thank you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. It is a basic principle of American law that a lawsuit does not decide the rights of non-parties. That basic principle has a few narrow exceptions, none of which applies here. Taylor had no involvement in the prior case. He had no legal relationship with any party to that case. And no party to that case had the legal authority to represent him. What if you have a situation where uh, it's an associational standing case, and the individual is the one that's relied upon to give the association standing? In that case, is the individual, even though he's not bringing the suit, is he barred by the association's case? I think that would depend on whether the association in that case had the authority to bring that case on behalf of that individual. In order for a person to be bound on the basis of representation in the prior case, the party to the prior case had to have the authority to bring the case on behalf of that other person. It had to be a, a representational relationship where the party to the first case is exercising the authority to represent the later case. And that has to be a, a relationship that exists at the time of the first litigation. Someone can't retroactively be represented during the first litigation. What if you had a, a, a case and, and there's a, a suspicion of something like that this year, although the courts below did not so find? What if you had a case uh, in, in like this uh, in which the first litigant said to the second, uh, I brought my case and I lost. Uh, I want you to try again for me. Uh, and if if you do and you win, um, I will give you a job making use of the fruits of the litigation. Uh, would, uh, would there be an estoppel in that case? No, not just on those facts. And I do want to emphasize Why? first that that is a big shift from what was decided below. Um, what the Court held below was that Herrick represented Taylor in the previous case. It did not hold that Taylor was somehow representing Herrick in this case. It, it held, as I recall specifically, I, I think, that there was no collusion found. Uh, and uh, the suggestion was that if collusion had been found, and I, I was giving you an example of something that I would call collusion at least, uh, that the result might have been different. Collusion is sort of a pejorative way of saying an agreement. And an agreement can be, um, can lead to preclusion under certain instances. But for well, those then, instances... Then why wouldn't my example have done so? In my example, the agreement was, I lost, please try again for me, and if you win, I'm going to give you a job making use of the, the fruits of the lawsuit. Uh, would, would that agreement not have been enough to, uh, to sustain a, a preclusion here? No, not without the party to the first case controlling the second case. But why, this why, should, is not why, should that, why should that matter? Because what's being protected here is the person's right to the opportunity to be heard on their claim. And in that case, but the, the, but second the claim case, that Justice Souter has positive is not one that the second person would have been. He was solicited. He was solicited to be a plaintiff in that second case. That is not the case that. That's involved here. As far as we exactly. know, Taylor didn't even know about the first case. He brings the second case. There's no indication that he was solicited by Herrick. So I don't know why you're even reaching the case where someone, someone is, you say, has to be controlled. But why are we getting into the details of such a situation when we have no solicitation? Exactly. This court does not need to decide what sort of solicitation or recruitment or agreement would lead right but if, to if we had, if we adopted as i understand it if we adopted your theory across the board it would preclude uh it would preclude a preclusion in in the case of my hypothetical and that's what i want to get at uh should we uh by adopting your theory uh eliminate the possibility uh of 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 preclusion in in the case that i put to you and, and you're, you're saying, I guess, well, if, if the, even there, there should be no preclusion unless the first party controlled the case uh, in the — controlled the second case. And my question is why? Well, again, that's a question of whether that second 
party is acting as an agent for the first party and really just trying to relitigate that first party's opportunity to be heard. And if the second party is an agent, then the second party can be precluded. Um, but again, exactly what would constitute that agency is not something that this Court needs to decide, because the facts here do not demonstrate that Taylor was representing Herrick in this case. Well, do you think that the, the collusion point was perhaps just ill-phrased here? Uh, there was no collusion, certainly in the sense that there was any kind of secret dealing going on. Uh, the, the, the second lawsuit, the people involved in it couldn't, Taylor, couldn't have been more candid, I guess, about what was going on. And so there was no collusion in the sense of, of uh, concealment or underhandedness. Uh, do you think that is perhaps the reason uh, that the Court of Appeals found that there was no collusion uh, and, and uh, that, therefore, we ought to discount that finding? Well, the, I think the Court of Appeals found that there was no collusion because the facts that are in the record about the relationship between Taylor and Herrick do not demonstrate that there was any collusion. Well, did the Court of Appeals actually say there was no collusion, or did it say we don't need to reach that question? It said that the facts were ambiguous and it did not need to decide it, but it also specifically said that on the facts before it, that Taylor could have brought an entirely separate, independent case separate from Herrick. It said these facts do not necessarily show collusion to avoid the preclusive effects of Herrick. Yes. We do not need to determine whether they count as tactical maneuvering. They did find that they did say there was a close working relationship relative to the successive cases, didn't they say that? They did say that. But again, then that just brings up the question of what sort of relationship is necessary for the, there to be preclusion. And many people have close relationships, but that does not necessarily mean that those people are bound or expect to be bound by decisions in each other's cases, but, particularly but, but, but here, the close relationship seems to boil down to this, and, and you correct me if I'm, I'm wrong here, because I may be missing some fact, but it is inconceivable to me that any reason for Taylor's participation or Taylor's bringing this lawsuit could be found, except the reason of trying to relitigate Eric's lawsuit so that Taylor would then either get the job or have an easier time fulfilling the job of fixing up the airplane. I can't think of any other reason on the facts as I understand them from the briefs. Is there, a, a, on, on the facts of the case, any other possible reason? Yes. Um, for starters, I just want to point out that there was no agreement, or the, the record does not show, and there was no agreement between them to actually work on the plane. Okay, but why else would he be doing, why, why else would he have been doing this? What, what, is, what does the record show as another possible explanation for this? Taylor is the executive director of the Antique Aircraft Association, and he's someone who is interested in antique aircrafts and in aviation generally. And after reading Herrick's decision, his explanation in the motion for discovery for filing his FOIA request is that he read the decision in Herrick and that he understood it to mean that he was legally entitled to the records. And so you he don't need a FOIA reason. Request. You don't need a reason to file a FOIA request anyway, right? Just, just, just the naked curiosity justifies your, your obtaining the documents, right? I mean, this, this is a lawsuit that does not require a reason, except I want the documents. You got them. I'm entitled to them. Yes, it requires the I mean, somebody could have walked in off the street and filed this same lawsuit, right? Anyone who is interested in the records could file a FOIA request for them. But if somebody walked in off the street and began this lawsuit and had absolutely no connection uh, with, uh, with, with Herrick and so on, the issue of preclusion wouldn't come up, or at least it wouldn't come up in the, in the context that it comes up here. But this isn't somebody who walked in off the street, uh, and the claim is there's a preclusion doctrine because of the relationship between Party 1 and Party 2. And the fact that anybody who comes in off the street could have asked, could have made the same request, uh, in, in effect is not an answer to the, to the, to the collusion uh, claim, is it? Well, it shows that the problem, if it exists, of there being repeated litigation over the same records is not one that would be solved through preclusion. And respondents have not shown there actually is a problem with repeated litigation over the same records. And um, the Department of Justice represents 
the defendants in all FOIA cases. So they would be able to know if that was a problem that came up again and again. What, ab- but- what about if it is the executive director of the association, the uh, suit is brought in the name of the association, and, and uh, they lose? Uh, can he bring suit as, you know, I'm just Joe Blow, but I, I happen to be the executive director, but I'm bringing this in my own name? The question, that would then come down to whether or not he controlled the first case, because one of the categories in which people are bound by prior litigation in which they were not themselves parties is if they had control over the first case and had the full and fair opportunity to Well, let's say there's somebody above him, you know, the president of the association who decides what lawsuits are brought, and and, uh, he's just the executive director. So if he was not in control of the first case and did not get his opportunity to be heard in that case. Well, he recommended to the president. He said, we ought to file this lawsuit. And the president said, okay. And they did. And then they lost. Can he go ahead as an individual? If he was not in control of that first case, yes, he could go ahead as an individual if, if he was not, if he is not representing the association in the second case, but is instead representing himself. And could he continue to solicit other members of the the, or the association to file FOIA suits all over the country until they finally got a favorable decision? Well, that would come down to what the definition of solicit was and whether those people were acting as agents of that person who was doing the soliciting. But again, this Court does not need to decide exactly what sort of solicitation would create that agency relationship because the facts in the record here do not show that that is what happened here. And also, FOIA is set up to allow there to be repeated litigation over the same records. Um, under FOIA, every requester has, every person has the right to request records. And once they have requested those records and been denied them, they have suffered a concrete and particular injury. Um, and they have the right to seek judicial review of that injury. So that makes this case different from the the taxpayer standing in Quo Ronto cases um, cited. Well, I mean, your, your statement implicates very serious questions of standing under Article 3, whether Congress can say, create the injury by saying you've been denied records and therefore you have standing. I, I, I think that's, I wouldn't as, go ahead assuming that that was correct. Although it's not really just your argument, it's also FOIA, isn't it? <laughs> well, that is the way Congress set up FOIA is to to give people that statutory entitlement to the records. And it does cover idle curiosity. I mean, I suppose if anyone in the, in the courtroom were to file a request for the same information, there could be no argument that there would be any kind of preclusion just because it's been heard before. Exactly. And if there were some problem with people, with there being multiple requests for the same records, that would be a problem for Congress to solve. And Congress has all sorts of creative ways of solving problems when it thinks that they are, in fact, problems. Um, It can channel all litigation into one court or into one court of appeals, like it does for patent cases, um, so to more easily create precedent. Or it didn't have to create FOIA to create this statutory individual entitlement to begin with. It could have set up FOIA more like a KETAM case in which one person did represent the whole public or the government in requesting records. But that's not what Congress did. Congress did give every person the right to records and the right to seek judicial review when they were denied records. And we can disagree about whether that was something Congress should have done, but that is what Congress did, and Congress's chosen scheme should not be altered through the back door of preclusion doctrine. And the amorphous factors used by the lower courts to hold Taylor bound also have their problems in terms of judicial efficiency and people coming into court. Those factors do not give guidance either to lower courts or to litigants themselves about who can be bound. I mean, a, in, in a threshold area like race judicata, it is particularly important to have clear rules about who can be bound to move on quickly to the merits of the case without having to go through a lot of collateral litigation. But the factors used by the Court of Appeals do not provide those clear rules. And they also don't provide clear rules to litigants about when they will, in fact, be bound by — when, in fact, they will be bound by a case. What are your clear rules? Give give, give me — set it forth clearly, what you think it takes. Number one, do do, do you have to know you're going to be bound at the time 
the first suit is brought. That, that isn't the, the requirement, is it? No. There are certain legal relationships that would not require someone to be — to know even of the case at the first suit. For example, a successor in interest to property can buy the property right. after the first suit and it yet is nonetheless bound by a decision. So what are your tests? What are your tests? How are they? How many? Five, four? It's not a totality of the circumstances test, though, right? No, it's — You have some criteria. What are they? There are. And Agency, right? Well, agency would fall into a larger category of that there are certain legal relationships that treat people as the same person for race judicata purposes and often for other purposes. And those are substantive relationships created by underlying substantive law. Okay. People can also be bound when they have, um, have had their full and fair opportunity to litigate in the prior case through some involvement in that case. So, for example, in Montana versus United States, this Court held that the government was bound because it had controlled the contractor who brought the prior case. Okay. And then people can be ha- bound when they were represented in the prior case. Um, and in that case, they did have their opportunity to be heard in the prior case just through a representative. Uh, a representative that they agreed to. Exactly. Someone who had the As in a class action where they have the, uh, the ability to bow out if they want. Well, a class action is a very good example of that representational relationship. And the Court of Appeals in this case used language that is very similar to the rationales used for class actions, talking about identity of interests and adequacy of representation. But it did not include any of the um, protections that are inherent in class actions, the factors that need to be looked at to make sure that class treatment is appropriate, the specification of who is and is not in the class. Yes, I mean, and the the individual's ability to withdraw from the class if he doesn't want to be bound by this suit, right? Yes, that's crucial. That is crucial in certain class actions. And the judge's obligation to look out for the class to see, for example, any settlement has to be approved by the judge to make sure that it's fair to the absent class members. Yes, that was absent here also. In in this situation, no one understood that first case to be litigating the rights of anyone but Mr. Herrick. Mr. Herrick did not understand that that's what was happening. The Tenth Circuit did not understand that that's what was happening. And Taylor did not understand what that's what was happening. If this case had been one in which uh, there were notice Mm -hmm. uh, before the suit was filed or at the the outset of the suit, (laughs) and some encouragement to go ahead with the suit. Would, would that have fit your, uh, I guess, second category of uh, uh, adequate representation, adequate opportunity to have your uh, case heard? The category of having the full and fair opportunity yes, to litigate full and the fair prior yeah. case? No. Um, and, and, and that is because? That is because that would basically be setting up a system of um, mandatory voluntary intervention. In but a why, case. why doesn't that fit at least the uh, semantic version of the category you gave us? Because that per- person still is not receiving, is not fully and fairly litigating that case. They are not involved in that case under that hypothetical. And they're not in control of that case. Merely knowing about a case and knowing that one could voluntarily intervene is not enough. And this Court has Stated, so your list of factors is cumulative. They're not independent categories. Your category number two, then, is not a standalone category for, for, barring, for barring the second plaintiff. It can be in certain circumstances, just because a — It's a word that we used to use in privity. If you're in privity with somebody else, you can — but that's a pre-existing legal relationship. Yes. Yeah, like the beneficiary and the trustee. Well, but, but, but that's, not what, that's not what your second category was. I, I understand privity, but you didn't — you weren't just trying to restate the concept of privity in your second category, were you? The category or, talking about yes, involvement full, full and fair in prior litigation? Right. Otherwise, you would have just said privity. Well, the, the problem with the term privity is that privity is often used somewhat as a conclusion right. to mean that someone was right. bound by the prior case. What — is generally meant by privity or often the, — the way the word is often used is to mean the, the substantive legal relationships. 
But lower courts have sometimes put the control cases in the category of privity. They've sometimes put the adequate representation cases in the category of privity. Um, so just talking about privity, it d- doesn't really give the bounds of, of we, who can be We can use it accurately. Bring it back to what it really means, can't we? What, what if you have a situation where a client has retained a law firm to do something and the law firm is part of its normal activity, files a FOIA request, they think something useful is going to come up there and it's denied, and then the law firm on its own, not as, not, as the, not as retained by the company, files a FOIA suit. Uh, is, in that case, is the company bound by the determination in the case or can they then file another action? Who would, if the company filed its own FOIA case, no, FOIA the, 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 law, the law firm, the, the law firm <laughs> files its own FOIA request and it's denied and, and they uh, litigate that and then they lose and then the company brings a, a FOIA action. And the law firm brought it on behalf of the law firm, but the no. company is bringing it on, on behalf of the company? Yes. And they are separate requesters who each have, should have their own opportunity to be heard on their own FOIA claim. Even if the company is represented by the same law firm? Yes, even if they're represented by the same law firm. Which is the case here. It is the same lawyer that's involved. Yes. But in the the case of the chief's hypothetical, of course, it would never come up if the client then got another lawyer to to bring the — but there's no automatic preclusion in that relationship as there is in the traditional relationships? Well, people are not generally precluded because of their lawyers' actions in prior cases. Well, but I I guess be fair to my hypothetical. It was the company that was paying for what the law firm was doing. It just wasn't the the filing of the suit. Um, The the law firm went off on its own. Maybe it does it all the time, and they have a case. They think this might be helpful. They're filing FOIA requests. The question there would come down to whether the company was representing the — whether the law firm in that instance was representing the company with the authority to be representing the company. Is it purely a formal inquiry? In in other words, let's say the company is paying the law firm, they're representing, but the the law firm just files in its own name. Does that make a difference? I think it would go to the underlying agreement between the law firm and the company and whether the company had somehow given the law firm authority to be filing this FOIA request and then filing the lawsuit. Why isn't that like Montana, where the government was not a party to the case, but it was in control of what the contractor was doing? Right. So, again, if the company was in control, and I think there would have to be that sort of agreement that it would be represented. I think you'd also say that if the company paid for the suit, company is, I don't want to be in control of it, and I don't want you to sue in my name, but I think this is a good thing for you to do, so I'll pay for it. I think that could be an indicator that the company was, that the law firm was representing the company. No, no, the company says, absolutely, I do not want you to represent me. That is in, in a letter, okay? So it's clear that the law firm is not representing the company, but the company thinks that it's, it's a good idea to have this lawsuit, and uh, yeah, I'll bankroll it. If the you, law firm does not have the authority to represent the company, then it's hard to see how the company could be bound by a decision. You don't think that somebody who finances, who, who solicits a, a litigation, recruits someone to bring the case, pays for it, and then says, I've recruited a very good law firm, so I can stay out of it. I'm not going to try to manage it. I don't know anything about the law. I'm not going to try to manage this case. But someone who recruits a firm and pays for it wouldn't be bound? I think you got to give that one away. You really do. <laughs> I think that that's a harder instance. And that well, I mean, is it, well, it's what it means company. to control a case. Let's say some group, say public citizen litigation group, sends a fundraising thing around saying, we think all our members ought to contribute to a special fund so that we can bring you know, a lawsuit under FOIA. Uh, are, are all of those individual contributors then bound by the result? No. Well, do you, so it makes a difference if it's one company as opposed to 40 donors? Well, again, it comes back to whether those people have given the person bringing the case 
the authority to represent them in that lawsuit. Well, but in the previous hypothetical, there was no authority to represent. They just said, I think this is a good idea. Here's the money. Yes, and I I still think then that situation there also would not be preclusion. But the questions of when someone controls a prior case are very different from what happened here, where there was no notice of that prior litigation. Well, control. So there are three companies, and they each have, you know, they can vote. They each have 33 percent control. Are they each bound, or because they didn't control it, none of them are bound? If they had not given the law firm the authority to represent them in that particular case, then they are not bound. Well, they said, yes, you can, you can represent us, and we're three different companies, and, you know, it's a majority vote as to what you can, can do. Well, then that is sort of standard representation by a law firm of a company, and those people would be legally represented in that lawsuit, have had their day in court, and would be bound by that decision. Unless there are further questions, I would like to reserve the rest of my time. Thank you, counsel. Thank you. Mr. Hallward-Dreemeyer. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Although the precise formulation adopted by the Court of Appeals may be somewhat novel, <clears throat> its holding and finding of privity here is consistent with well-established principles of res judicata. Where multiple persons engage in coordinated successive litigation to vindicate a joint interest with respect to which a judgment in favor of any of them will benefit all, then a judgment in the first litigation in which that interest is adequately represented binds the others as well. Would you explain to me how that could possibly work? I can understand that you are making an argument that the second case, there was a recruitment, there was collusion or whatever. But for all we know from this record, how could Taylor possibly be bound when Herrick's suit is over? Because as far as we know, Taylor never heard of that first case. How can somebody be bound by a litigation in which they had no notice, no opportunity to be heard? So if we freeze the situation at the end of case one, how could Taylor possibly be bound? Well, I think it's important to start by recognizing that even Petitioner acknowledges that there can be circumstances in which Taylor would be bound, even though at the time, at the end of Herrick's litigation, he had no notice, he had not participated. And that is, on their view and ours as well, that if Herrick had thereafter created an agency relationship with Taylor, and Taylor then, as agent, went and brought the second FOIA suit. Because he's acting for Herrick, who is bound by the first case. That's right. And, and, but, but all of that, that can exist or be created after the first litigation is over. And so the absence of notice in the first case. What you're saying is the person who is really in the second case is the same person who was in the first case, and Taylor is simply acting as an agent to give Herrick another chance. We're talking about binding Taylor. Well, but Taylor, in the second suit that he brings as agent to advance the interests of Herrick, would be bound. Taylor would be barred. His suit would be barred. There was no finding of that. There was no finding here of agency relationship. There was no finding of collusion. That would be a different case. Well, I, I don't, the Court certainly did not find that there was no collusion. I agree no, that the Court didn't reach. No, it said it wasn't reach, reaching that question. It didn't reach the question of what they called tactical maneuvering. Mm-hmm. I think that there is a, 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 a strong argument could be made that Taylor was Herrick's agent. But I don't think that it's critical to find that he was his agent in the very technical sense of the restatement third you know, agency. If, if, he, if he was his agent, and this, this goes to Justice Ginsburg's uh, line of inquiry, uh, suppose in the second case, Herrick tells him, I want you to bring this uh, a suit on my behalf. He says, fine, I'll do that. He brings that suit. And then Taylor says, you know, I also want to bring a suit of my own. And he brings another suit, not as agent for Herrick. I suppose he could do that, couldn't he? The first suit would be thrown out because it's Herrick's second suit. But uh, 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 Taylor's own suit would remain Taylor's own suit, wouldn't it? 
No, no, Taylor. As long as there's no more collusion or anything else? He's if, if Taylor brought the second suit in his own name and it was found to be barred by res judicata, a third suit in Taylor's own name would likewise be, be barred. And there, there's a, a case that I think illustrates this point perhaps better than any of those we cited in our, on our brief, unfortunately. Uh, but, but I think I it's helpful so. because, <laughs> well, Your Your Honor, I think that it proves the the point that has been the uh, sort of underlying concern of many of the questions of what happens when you're just shy of a a true agency relationship. And the case is United States versus Des Moines Valley Railroad. It's an Eighth Circuit case, 84F40, from 1897. But importantly, this Court quoted it at length in the Chicago, Rock Island, and Pacific Railroad versus Shendell case. Did you, did you make your friend on the other side aware that you'd be? Yes, yes, I did, Your Honor. Um, uh, the, the Shendell case is 270 U.S. 611, and, it, and, and they discuss uh, Des Moines Valley at, at page 619. And what had happened in Des Moines Valley was that the United States had granted some land to the state of Iowa, which, which had in turn given patent to the railroad, which had in turn sold it to one claimant. There was another person who claimed directly from the United States as a homesteader. There had been litigation between the person claiming via the railroad and the homesteader as to who had title to the land. And the judgment in state court was adverse to the homesteader. And... Um, what happened later, about 10 years later, was that the United States brought suit to have declared invalid the title of the person claiming via the railroad. And uh, the, the district court actually initially questioned whether the United States had standing to bring the case at all. They, they viewed it as Fairchild's case. That was the, the, the homeowner uh, or homesteader, uh, a little uh, coincidence with this case, which also has a fair child. Um, but the Court of Appeals specifically said it wasn't deciding whether the United States had standing to bring the case in its own name. The case was litigated by the United States Attorney. They looked to the purpose that the United States sought to vindicate. They said that the United States does not seek to obtain title to this property for itself again. They are, in a sense, lending their name to allow Fairchild a second bite at the apple. Now, there was no control that Fairchild had over the United States. Fairchild didn't direct the United States attorney who was representing the United States. But the United States had taken up the interest of Fairchild, taking advantage of the fact that it had standing to sue itself. That's to just trying to get it's Fairchild a standard priv- privity case. It's privity in reverse. I suppose a subsequent owner of real estate is in privity with and therefore bound by a judgment concerning the real estate rendered against the prior owner. But it's probably also true that when there's a suit by a later owner, the prior owner cannot then uh, bring in court uh, a claim based upon the same uh, the, the, the same matters that the, that the subsequent owner relied on. Well, I, it, it's up privity instead of down privity, wouldn't, wouldn't I, it? I, I think what Your Honor is, is reacting to is the reality of the situation seems to be that there's a sufficient relationship between these two that they ought to be barred. But there is no section of the restatement second that specifically governs this case. And, and petitioner's view, which is that somehow the restatement second has become a codification of, of res judicata law, would not permit it. But, but in there fact, is in the, in the restatement of judgments, as far as I know, all the examples involve a representational relationship that existed at the time of the first litigation. There's nothing in the restatement that suggests that preclusion would be proper here. Well, Your, Your Honor, I, I agree that the restatement second does not, for example, state the law which we all know and which petitioner concedes is the case, and that is that the agent who brings the second lawsuit is bound even if the agency relationship arose after the first yes, litigation but here, was concluded. Do you agree with me on about the facts that we're dealing with here? As far as the first case is concerned, no evidence that Taylor even knew the tariff was Herrick was bringing that suit. Uh, the, what the 
evidence shows is that uh, Herrick made Taylor aware of the of the outcome of the litigation. That but if while the litigation about. is ongoing, Taylor doesn't know about it, right? There's no evidence about okay. that. Okay. And is there any evidence that Herrick asked Taylor to file a FOIA request what, the, after, the, after Taylor, uh, Herrick lost his The case. evidence is that Herrick asked Taylor to help him fix the plane, the plane and its re- restoration being the object of Herrick's own FOIA case. Taylor, in order to get those documents, which were but essential that, that to the restoration question, of the my plane. My question, Mr. Howard Dreemeyer, is did, uh, did Herrick ask Taylor to file that FOIA suit? And I think your answer is no. There's no evidence it, of that. There is no evidence that Herrick asked Taylor specifically is to there, file. Is there a, any evidence that Herrick financed the litigation? The, the, there is no specific evidence of that. The, the is there any evidence the that side, Herrick called any of the shots in that litigation? Well, c- counsel on the other side uh, filed an affidavit that said uh, it was very carefully crafted, I think, that uh, he, there was no attorney-client relationship with Herrick with respect to this In any case, the decision that we're reviewing didn't find any of those things. No, that's right. What the the Court of Appeals relied on was the fact that Taylor had made Herrick's interest his own and and brought the suit in order to vindicate the exact same interest that Herrick himself had already litigated and lost, and that was to get the documents to restore Herrick's So if another member of the club, let's say another, another member of the Aviation Association, who's interested in antique planes, uh, just files a FOIA request, would that person be precluded who is who knows that Herrick brought a suit and lost? He's just a member of the club. He doesn't want to help Herrick restore the plan. No, that, that person is, is not barred. Um, and, e- and even if he's the individual in the club that gave the club standing, associational standing? Well, I, I think in Your Honor's first question to opposing counsel uh, was such that, yes, I think that if it, that was the individual who's interest was relied upon to give an association standing that it would bind the individual who, whose, whose name and interest was relied on. And, and this is in some ways the reverse situation where my, — My question was just, just a member of the association. No, the in, Court of Appeals was clear that, that just a, a, a common membership in an association or just a common interest was not be enough. They, they distinguished the situation of a common interest in, a, in a, the same but objective. Why does there have to be any interest? Going back to a question I think — Justice Scalia asked, we're dealing with a most unusual statute. You don't have to have any reason for a FOIA request. That, that's true. We think that that, in fact, makes FOIA even more susceptible to the kind of vexatious litigation that petitioner seems to think is entirely permissible. And, and the courts of appeals yes, — general question. Why isn't the defense of stare decisis adequate to take care of all your problems? Well, because FOIA allows uh, uh, claims to be brought in a number of different venues. If they're all the same, wouldn't they say, well, that's the same case we had last week? Well, FOIA allows the case to be brought in a number of different venues. It could be brought in the venue of of the — where the requester lives, where the documents are located, or the District of Columbia. And so a person such as Herrick could ask — uh, for assistance on his project, the project of rebuilding the plane, of people scattered throughout the country. Correct. And, and they could bring the cases soup, but is, throughout easy, the country. is it any easier to defeat the suit by claiming there was uh, preclusion because of a, a suit in another jurisdiction rather than stare decisis? Well, Your, Your Honor, the, um, the fact is that in FOIA, especially a, uh, an Exemption 4 case, there are a, a special burdens on the government. The government has the burden of proving that the exemption is warranted. So the plaintiff can just sort of lob anything in there. The government bears the burden of persuading the court in each case that the exemption is warranted. Fairchild, a private party that wants to protect its 
own property interest in the trade secret is forced to go around the country litigating this over and over and over again as well. And the courts that have considered the question recognize that the public right nature of the interest is one that makes application of the rule particularly appropriate because both the interest of the individual litigant, the plaintiff, is reduced, but also the opportunity for vexatious relitigation is increased multiple times because of the almost infinite number of potential plaintiffs. This case um, was decided by the lower courts on the basis of the relationship between Herrick and Taylor. It was the fact that Taylor had taken up Herrick's own interest. There was the interest in the project. The project was the restoration of the plane. Herrick owned the plane. Herrick had brought suit based on that interest and lost. He asked Taylor to help him in that project. Taylor then brings the suit to get the same documents for the same purpose. And, and we think that the U.S. versus Des Moines Valley Railway case is an example where just shy, perhaps, of an actual agency relationship, because there's no control in, in Des Moines Valley, that still the fact that the second litigate has volunteered to add, take their name to, uh, in a sense, take advantage of the fact that they have independent standards. Counsel, you, you have suit. described for us a, a, a thousand-headed monster of litigation, and, and your proposal for a solution is to cut off one eyebrow. You're, you're, you're going to solve just the case of, of, you know, two people building an airplane. You agree anybody else in the association can file a lawsuit. Anybody else in the United States can file a lawsuit, even if they're not in the association. It seems to me that, uh, you know, in, in, in order to cut off an eyebrow, I'm not, I'm not willing to, uh, uh, make a whole lot of uh, incursion upon our, our traditional rules of, uh, uh, of who's bound by a lawsuit. Well, Your Honor, we stretch we, for that. We are we are not advocating a broad rule. We, in fact, think that's oh. one of the virtues of our argument that where there is a document that is of true public interest, such that multiple individuals on entirely independent grounds might well seek it, they would not be barred. But where a document has commercial value, like this one does to Mr. Herrick, so that he can restore his plane without going to the incredible expense of, of, of developing another manner to prove to the FAA the airworthiness of this case, there is that commercial value that gives him the incentive to try to relitigate over and over again. And on petitioner's view, as long as he stops just shot of an agency relationship, he can do that throughout the country. Is this, a, is this like an approach that only applies in FOIA cases? I would assume in every other case you have the normal Article Three requirements of injury, which limits exactly who can sue. Well, the, the rule is a broader rule, and we've pointed out that it, it, it has in common with the rule with respect to co-beneficiaries that's existed since the 1800s at the very uh, latest. The rule in, is stated in Section 48 of the restatement, which is an example, a counterexample, Justice Ginsburg, to your question about whether it always had to be a pre-existing legal relationship. Because Section 48 deals with a, a particular situation where there are multiple individuals who can claim for personal injury of one of them. And the, the st section is stated in terms of another person, not a family member. And the commentary to this section makes clear that although most situations where it would apply would be family members, it also applies to, uh, and I want to want to quote it, um, a de facto connection may sometimes suffice as well as a formally valid one. So the law of, of I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure what the hypothetical is. I mean, it's certainly not the case that, let's say you have a whole busload of people get injured in the same accident. Plaintiff one, Susan loses, two, Susan loses, three is no. not precluded, four is but, not precluded. But it recognizes that there could be a close enough relationship between the two, such as the purposes of the rule would be satisfied, but there is no legal familial relationship. And, yes, and but if all that had been proved, the problem is that the D.C. Circuit said, we're not going to look into uh, what they call strategic whatever. We're going to take it just as it is with none of, no, no showing that these two are in cahoots. 
They, they didn't need to because of the fact that Taylor had voluntarily taken up Herrick's interest to get a second bite at the litigatory apple, as the First Circuit uh, put it. The, the, and it. And it is not the fact, as Petitioner would argue, that every time another person has an individual standing right to, to sue under a statute, that it means that that person necessarily gets to relitigate where a person with whom they have a close relationship, such as this, has already litigated and lost. Um, and, and so, I, getting back to Your Honor's question. It's sort of a totality of the circumstances test in every case, right? Well, well. We look at the whole thing and we say, you know, close enough relationship. We, Not close enough, close enough. We think we, there are You need a better general, rule than that for something that, you know, that is a threshold issue in a case. Well, Your Honor, it, it's interesting that the restatement with respect to the third category, in the reply brief, they called it the third category control, perhaps. Um, it's described in the restatement in comment to Section 62 as where the person falls short of becoming a party, but which justly should result in his being denied opportunity to relitigate. Yeah, that's just that as bad. Is the right. nature, You're that is right. the nature that's of res judicata principles, that it's not can you avoid this by <laughs> avoiding the legal technicalities. It's the substance of the relationship that counts. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Counsel. <coughs> Ms. Stetson. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Justice Scalia, I'd like to begin with the question that you posed earlier regarding privity and what it really means, because that's what's given rise, I think, to all of these vexing hypotheticals and to your concern about this being nothing more than uh, a completely freewheeling uh, totality of the circumstances test. The problem, I think, that you're confronting is that you don't have the usual place that you, that you plant your foot whenever you try to develop a categorical rule. You don't have a statutory text. You don't have a constitutional text. This is a federal common law issue. And as this Court unanimously acknowledged in 1996, what our notions are of privity are changing, and they continue to change. In 1942, when the first restatement was issued, privity was defined as control or successor in interest or representation. 1982, when the second restatement was issued, privity was defined generally as representation, legal relationships, or that Section 62 category that Mr. Hallward-Dreemeyer just mentioned, which we can call shenanigans. Um, the, the notion of privity is underpinned in every single one of those contexts by a couple basic inquiries. And this is what, this is what makes it something uh, much more confined than a freewheeling totality of the circumstances text. The inquiries are, what are the relationships between these two litigants, these two serial litigants, and how have they conducted themselves in this litigation? And this, in turn, I think, gets to the dialogue that, that Justice Souter, you were having with, with my colleagues. Um, your first question was uh, posited the situation where one plaintiff sues and loses and comes to another and says, please try again for me. That is precisely this case. And we don't have to get into There was no showing that, that Herrick ever asked to There is a showing that they're interested in rebuilding this plane or restoring the plane. But we don't have, and the D.C. Circuit said it was not relevant to its analysis. Yes, I would totally agree with you if we have a recruiting situation, if we have a financing situation. But the D.C. Circuit said, well, that's irrelevant. I agree with you. The D.C. Circuit didn't find collusion looking at, at Petitioner's Appendix 17A at, at two things, the timing of the suit and the sharing of discovery. But we don't need to get into the evidence of collusion, because what the D.C. Circuit concluded as a predicate finding for its close relationship holding was that there was a request from Mr. Herrick to Mr. Taylor to assist in the repair of his plane. And you can see this play out very tellingly at Joint Appendix 31 to 32. If you look there, this is the motion to allow discovery. Uh, Joint Appendix 31 is where Mr. Taylor relays at length the Tenth Circuit argument and the Tenth Circuit ruling. The first full paragraph on Joint Appendix 32 begins, Mr. T Mr. Herrick has now requested 
Mr. Taylor, to assist in the repair of his plane. Now, Mr. Herrick, you can see from the first exhibit to Fairchild's summary judgment motion in the district court, page 161, Mr. Herrick has six full-time mechanics. Uh, he lives in Jackson Hole. His mechanics work in Minneapolis. He doesn't need Mr. Taylor, who lives in Iowa, to actually physically assist with the repair of his plane. What he needs is someone with whom he doesn't have a, an extant employment relationship, who lives in a different circuit, to get those documents. Look, I, I, I can see, we, we can all see where you're going, but isn't the problem uh, this? In effect, you're asking us uh, to, to infer a finding of fact, and we're not the trial court. Uh, you, you, you've raised a, a, a good circumstantial suspicion case, uh, but uh, either, either because uh, it wasn't raised by your predecessor counsel as well or, or because the, for some reason the, the district court uh, just would not buy it, that's the, the conclusion that you want us to draw isn't before us, and I don't see that we're the appropriate court to draw it. Two responses, Your Honor. The, the first is that conclusion was precisely the conclusion that was drawn by the D.C. Circuit on the close relationship point. If you look at Joint Appendix 17A, uh, the, the conclusion on close relationship uh, was predicated on, among other things, the critical fact of the request from Mr. Herrick to Mr. Taylor to repair the plane. That okay, is what but, made but at, at, at no point did the D.C. Circuit or the District Court, as I understand it, say that request, in effect, was a request to relitigate this matter so that we both, the owner of the plane and the repairer of the plane, uh, would, would have what I was seeking in my first lawsuit. They never actually crossed the line and drew that conclusion, did they? The District Court, in fact, held precisely that. What did it say? Uh, Joint I Appendix mean? 35A, Petitioner's Appendix 35A, yeah, yeah. the District Court concluded uh, as a factual finding that there was deliberate maneuvering based on two things, identical but that's, that, that's out of the case, because the Court of Appeals said we do not need to determine whether they count as tactical maneuvering. We do not do so. Well, I, I'm going to resist you slightly, Justice Ginsburg, because I'm not sure it's out of the case. It's very curious. It could be remanded. It could be remanded with instructions that the collusion question is still open. Prove it. It hasn't been proved. What the district court found constituted collusion was identical interests and the request. What the D.C. Circuit found did not constitute collusion was the timing of the FOIA action and uh, the sharing of discovery. So they're, they're operating on the collusion front on, on two completely parallel well, paths. But, that, but on the yeah. what, what, what the what the opinion said is to review the bidding, there is record evidence that, one, Taylor and Herrick had identical interests. That's true. Two, Taylor's interest was adequately represented in Herrick. Well, that's fine. Three, Herrick and Taylor had a close working relationship relative to these successive cases. <laughs> I, and that's enough. That, that, but, but that's, the, that's enough to show collusion. The, the discussion that precedes the reviewing of the bidding uh, <clears throat> references, with respect to the close relationship finding, the request from Mr. Herrick to Mr. Taylor to assist in the repair of his plane, the request that's featured at Joint Appendix 32 as the preceding factor to the filing of the FOIA action. And I, I grant you that does make this case quite unique. It does make it quite similar to the 1897 case from the Eighth Circuit. And I think it's quite telling that we haven't found another analog. That doesn't mean that this doesn't fall well within the, the wheelhouse of privity cases that this Court is quite comfortable with. What, what about the associational cases? The association brings a suit uh, in, the in, excuse me, in the interest of the members. Are those members bound? Well, it depends on it depends on a couple things, Mr. Chief Justice. The first thing it depends on is a finding that the interest of the association and of the members is identical, not just common, not just not just the. Well, in our association standing cases, we talk about germane, right? Is right. that enough? I think I think the interests need to to be identical. I'm not sure that it's enough just to have a common cause. 
uh, the interests were found in this case to be identical because one was literally factually derivative of the other. And I want to make a point clear about the difference between FOIA standing, such as it is, and the interest that's being represented in this case. The fact that Mr. Taylor, after learning of Mr. Herrick's defeat, uh, decided to perfect his FOIA right and sue in federal court gave him standing. That was all it gave him. What it did not do is give him a free pass from a race judicata inquiry. And Justice Scalia and Justice Ginsburg, to your points about FOIA not requiring a motive, that's absolutely right at the agency level. But at the point where a disappointed FOIA requester comes into court and asks to be heard on the same claim representing somebody else's interest on its face at Joint Appendix 32, that's the point where the judicial doctrine of race judicata kicks in. And that's Any, but anyone in this audience and anyone in the association would be a proper FOIA plaintiff. Is that right? That is right. That, that is absolutely right. The reason that Mr. Taylor is barred uh, is not just because he's asking for these same documents. These are incredibly unusual documents. They don't have great public appeal. But the reason he's barred is because Mr. Herrick requested his assistance in the repair of the airplane. Mr. Taylor sought the same documents for exactly the same reason, to be used to exactly the same end purpose. That should, th- I think, give the petitioner a great deal of comfort in this regard. We are not advocating, nor is the government, uh, a, a privity rule that is going to result in the widespread preclusion of FOIA plaintiffs who seeks the same documents for independent reasons. But when someone comes to the court pressing someone else's interests, that is a square privity issue, and he should be barred. Thank you, Ms. Stetson. Ms. Rosenbaum, four minutes. Thank you. Um, first, I want to address the two cases brought up by the government. In Denoyne Valley Railroad, that was someone who had the right to the land because of a grant from the government. And in that case specifically, the court pointed out that the, govern- the Congress had passed a law um, that had the government give up all interest, that showed that the government had given up all interest in the land. And in the Rock Island Railroad case, that had to do with a, a beneficiary and the administrator of an estate. And these are legal relationships that give rise to privity. And that's exactly the point. There are relationships that do give rise to privity, but the relationship between Taylor and Herrick is not one of them. Um, the, the government also pointed out that FOIA requesters can bring suit in different venues, and that is the case. They can bring it in the District of Columbia, where the records are or where they are. But as they pointed out, that is the way that FOIA is set up. Congress allowed requesters to bring suits in different places, and that's not the way Congress needed to establish FOIA. It could have made one place the sole venue for bringing suit under FOIA, but it did not. And then finally, what if two people get together who want the same documents um, for the same purpose, which is they think they're going to make money off of it, and they say, whichever one of us gets it, we'll share it with the other, and we'll split the money we're going to get? So they bring separate separate suits, separate requests, separate suits. They just want to double their chances of getting the documents. But they agree to split. They, they think they're going to make $100 off of this, and they agree to split it 50-50, regardless of who wins. Um, and I think what would have to be looked at there is control or representation. But again, there, the facts here do not show that there is any agreement between Taylor and Herrick to — there's no agreement either to repair the plane, but more specifically, there are no agreements to bring this lawsuit. So this Court does not need to reach the question of exactly what sort of agreement would lead to preclusion. And the problem with the lower court's um, decision here is that they did just look at a a grab bag of amorphous factors to hold Taylor bound. They talked about a close relationship without um, it being the sort of relationship under which one party is representing the other or under which they have a legal relationship. 
Ms. Stetson said that the district court, unlike the Court of Appeals, did find collusion, and she referred to a page that I didn't check. The district court um, did think that there was tactical maneuvering happening here, but then the Court of Appeals specifically said that the district court had erred in, um, in concluding that there had been an agreement between them. Do you think we need to <coughs> remand this for consideration of whether or not there was an agreement if we conclude um, that what we see from the Court of Appeals' opinion isn't enough? Um, As I understand, the Court of Appeals would, didn't think an agreement was necessary. Mm-hmm. So regardless of what the district court said, then that was an issue that was litigated and was not passed on by the Court of Appeals. Yes, so, this Court could remand it, and then the district court would have the discretion to allow the case to go forward as it saw fit. And the problem, the problem with the factors looked at by the lower courts with basing privity on just amorphous facts and basically just having courts check their gut about whether or not that relationship is sufficient is that it ends up with people being found in privity when they did not actually have their right to be heard the way Taylor did not hear. And instead, privity should be based on underlying rationales that protect the litigants' rights to be heard and ensure that they do have their day in court. Unless there are any further questions. Thank you, Ms. Rosenbaum. The case is submitted.